Friends, let's open in our Bibles to 1 Samuel. We're going to begin a new series in the book of 1 Samuel. You start at the beginning of your Bibles, get through the first five books, and then it's Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel. And I'm going to read today the first half of the first chapter, starting in 1 Samuel and beginning in verse 1. Hear now God's word. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. And he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the others, other was Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year after year from his city of worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year after year. As soon as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord, and they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her, and in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, you are indeed the Lord of hosts. You have every resource at your disposal. And so we ask in faith that you would come and speak through your word to us this morning. Give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, give us hearts to receive and apply your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. It's fun to start this new series in First and Second Samuel because Samuel has everything you want from a good story. Kings, Prophets, spies, intrigue, giants, demons, war, murder, acts of bravery and cowardice, tragedy, comedy, love, lust, narrow escapes. In fact, I think First and Second Samuel make the Game of Thrones look like the Magic Kingdom. Not least because it is historically true. It has a discernible plot. It's willing to kill off main characters. It paints 
portraits with unflinching honesty, and yet through all of that, it holds on white knuckle to the hope that there is a God in heaven who is an architect of the entire fate of the world. Well, anytime we open up a new book, we've got to do some homework to have access to it. To borrow C.S. Lewis's analogy and change it, the books of the Bible are like rooms in a very long hallway. The hallway opens up into these rooms, each of which are a book of the Bible. And when you enter a room, you see furniture you don't immediately recognize. You see people that you're vaguely familiar with, and everybody's already having a conversation. Now, anybody could walk into any room and stand at the back and get something, in the same way that any one of us could open up our Bibles to a random page and point our finger and read a few chapters And we're going to come away with some kind of nugget of truth, but that's not at all the way the Bible is meant to be read. And so it's far better when we approach a book as a whole to be that awkward guy at the party and to walk in the room and say, I'm sorry, could we get reintroduced? What's everybody's name and what are we talking about? And and while I'm asking questions, what's a Thanksgiving offering and an ephod? It's just better to do our homework and have access to what's going on here. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to set the stage of First and Second Samuel and trace where we are in God's salvation history. Because by the time we get to these books, we're already deep into God's work to save his people. Genesis through Deuteronomy, these are the first five books of the Bible, also known as the Torah or the Pentateuch, and they set the stage for God's salvation. We hear in Genesis that God elects a man named Abraham and he makes a covenant with him. That is a promise that he will bring salvation through Abraham and everybody who is connected to him. Well, the the people of Israel who are born out of Abraham, they find themselves enslaved in Egypt, what we've been reading on Sunday mornings in our Old Testament readings. And so God raises up another leader, Moses, who leads the people out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, and towards the promised land. And when he does that, God gives his people gifts. He gives them the gift of his law, which is the Ten Commandments. He gives them the gift of his presence. He follows and goes with them most readily in the tabernacle, which is a tent, a makeshift temple that they bring with them in their wilderness wanderings. Well, we know the story of Israel. We know that because of their lack of faith, they don't immediately enter the promised land. They wander for 40 years. And finally, when Deuteronomy closes and the book of Joshua opens, the people find themselves on the border of the promised land. Moses has died. Joshua now becomes the leader of the people. And the book of Joshua is a string of amazing victories. Joshua leads the people into the promised land, which is occupied by wicked nations. And he has a string of victories. Joshua fit the battle of Jericho and other battles. And they conquer. And now they occupy most of the land of Israel. And that's divided up between the 12 tribes. And the the book of Joshua ends in this dramatic fashion where Joshua gathers all the people after they've seen everything that the Lord has done, and he says to them, choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, the book of Joshua ends, and the book of Judges begins, and it is a very, very dark portion of Israel's history with just a few candles that burn throughout. It's interesting, the people of Israel, God's chosen people who have a covenant with him for their salvation, they follow God during the time of Joshua, and they even follow God 
during the time and the lives of the elders that served alongside of Joshua. But once Joshua dies and once his contemporary elders die, the people change course. The Word of God says there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done. And we begin what is going to be 400 years of darkness. It's a vicious cycle in the book of Judges where the people act wickedly and so God sends a neighboring nation to torment them and oppress them. And eventually, the people of Israel cry out for salvation. God raises up a judge. He saves them and delivers them. And then we enter the cycle again. The people of Israel once again act wickedly and run from the Lord. Now, up until Judges, we've been kind of going chronologically. Every book ends where the next book begins. But once we hit judges, all of a sudden some storylines start to happen on top of each other. So in the middle of the book of Judges is when Ruth happens and also 1 Samuel. These are stories that are being told at the same time, even though we read them as separate books. And so for instance, Samson, the great judge in Israel, is a contemporary of Samuel the prophet. These two men live at the same time, even though they're separated by the book of Ruth. But all three books agree that the situation in Israel is very bleak. That Israel at this time is a lawless nation. Judges says again and again, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The priesthood, the Levites, the one who are supposed to be champions of God and his word and his tabernacle, they are utterly corrupt and they lead the people astray. And finally, as we enter the story here in 1 Samuel, Israel is about to begin what is going to be 40 years of oppression from the Philistines. It's a very, very dark time in her history. Abraham and his barren wife, Sarah, were promised to be a great nation. God said, I'm blessing you so that you will be a blessing to all nations so that your seed will number the sand on the seashore and the stars in the heaven. But instead, Israel, God's people, have rejected God And Israel has become like a barren woman, utterly fruitless, and unable to carry to term her covenant with the living God. That's where our story begins. Enter Hannah, a barren woman, and you get the impression that we're not just talking about her personal tragedy of infertility, but we're talking about this tragedy of a spiritually infertile nation as we watch her move through this story. Uh, The tale is simple enough. Elkanah marries Hannah, and she is his first wife. And as they're married, they discover after several years that Hannah can't bear any children. And so, as was the case in those days, Elkanah finds a second wife, Peninnah, and he marries her, and she is able to bear children. Hannah means favored, Peninnah means fruitful, and kind of like Rachel and Leah, Hannah is the one who's the first chosen wife. He's the one who's beloved by Elkanah. But Peninnah is the one who has the joy of bearing lots of children. Well, every year this extended family, now two wives and the children of Peninnah, they go year after year to Shiloh to worship the Lord. Now, we haven't seen King David yet. We haven't seen King Solomon. King Solomon will build a temple, a permanent structure of worship in Jerusalem, but none of that has happened yet. So right now, all we have is the tabernacle, a tent that has planted itself at Shiloh, and this becomes the center of worship. 
So year after year, Elkanah gathers his family, and they go to Shiloh to worship. And he gives a sacrifice. And we don't know exactly what the sacrifice is, but we know it's not the burnt offering or the sin offering, because those were completely consumed before the Lord. And this is a different kind of offering. This is like the peace or the thanksgiving offering, where it's given to the Lord, and then it's roasted and given back to the people to enjoy as a community meal. You gather your family and your friends around, and you eat this meal before the Lord, and it's a reminder to us to say, we have personal fellowship with the living God. He eats with us, he dines with us, he's with us. You think about the backdrop of the book of Judges, and what a dark time this is, and how wicked the people are, and this is really remarkable. No matter how bad things get in the book of Judges, there is always a faithful remnant. There is at least one family in Israel who packs up year after year and brings an offering before the Lord to worship him. But our story has a very dark irony to it because of any place on earth that we ought to feel closest to God, it would be in a, in a peace or a thanksgiving offering where a person sits down before the Lord and has a meal with him in his presence. And yet this is the darkest time in Hannah's life. She carries this burden year after year. She is barren. She cannot have a child. And this comes to a head every time she comes to join in this feast. Now, I think we need to be really careful here when we read this story. We need to read our Bibles slowly, and we need to walk through this story as Hannah experiences it. I was able to read 20 verses this morning, and we saw in one sitting that this is resolved, and there's good news at the end of this story. But Hannah, when she begins this journey, she has no idea that verse 20 exists, and she suffers for a long, long time. Think about it. She marries Elkanah, and she struggles with infertility long enough for them to try again and again and again over several years and realize that that she's infertile and she won't be able to have children. Then she must endure the utter humiliation of Elkanah finding a second wife, one who is able to bear children for him. And then she must endure the humiliation as they continue to try to watch Peninnah bear multiple sons and daughters, and then she must endure the time in which those kids of Peninnah can grow up and be old enough to come to Shiloh on their own and to receive portions of this Thanksgiving offering. So what we read in 20 verses is probably at least 20 years in the life of Hannah. 20 years of waiting and praying and being disappointed. Now, that alone would be enough to wreck a person's faith and wreck a person's understanding of who God is and what exactly he's doing in the world. But that's not it for Hannah because there are other forces pressing in against her. Peninnah, we hear, is completely cruel to her. Verse 6, her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her. Now, If Peninnah is supposed to be among the faithful remnant, these few select people in this family who are still worshiping God in this backdrop of the judges period, why on earth is she such a jerk to Hannah? Well, if you're disappointed with utter moral lapses in the faithful, if you're disappointed to learn that a believer can be an awful person to another human being, then buckle up because we're in a really, really long ride for the book of Samuel. 
and the rest of the Bible and our entire lives, right? Because we're watching ourselves in this story. Faithful remnant, we do wicked things to each other, and Peninnah just irritates and provokes this other wife. Then there's Elkanah. He loves his wife dearly. He cares for her, but he's just out of touch. He wants to be helpful, but in verse 8, he says to her, Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? We kind of have a running joke in my house. If Julie comes and asks me for something, I say, Baby, you don't need that. Am I not worth more to you than ten new pairs of shoes? Um, And it's never worked for me, and it never worked for Elkanah, so I wouldn't recommend it. But there's, in spite of his love, there's a little naivety here for what his wife is experiencing. Then you have Eli. Uh, Hannah can't find sympathy. She can't find help in her own house, but she doesn't even immediately find it in the house of the Lord. We might be reading the 20th time that she's come to the tabernacle, maybe even to make this vow and to cry out to the Lord. And when she comes and gets on her face before the Lord and cries out in prayer, not with her voice, but with her lips, the scene here just shows how far gone Israel is. The high priest watching a woman bow before the tabernacle does not recognize prayer. He doesn't even know that this woman is praying. He thinks she's drunk in the morning and he rebukes her. And once again, that's an added humiliation to this woman who's seeking help. Worst of all, worse than a rival, second wife, or a naive husband, or a clueless priest, must be in this passage the utter silence of God. Here's a sweet, faithful wife who all she wants is not fame or wealth or riches, but a child. And year after year, verse 10 says, she brings this gaping loss to the Lord in bitter tears and absolutely nothing happens. For 20 years, She takes the long walk back to her home in Ramah just as barren and disappointed as when she came. And it almost makes it worse to me to learn that she will have a son, Samuel, and more sons and daughters because that makes this 20 years of waiting seem all the more meaningless. And while this is happening, God is utterly silent in the face of suffering. You and I don't do that so much. As as fellow Christians, we walk into a room of suffering and we can't help but fill it with words, right? We would pull a person like Hannah aside and say, Hannah, the Lord is trying to teach you patience right now. Or, Or Hannah, the reason the Lord is doing this is because he wants you to depend completely and entirely on him. Or Hannah, we're going to look back at this in 10 years and we are going to know exactly why God did this. We say this to each other, and that may or may not be true, but none of that is in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Twenty years of a human life spent in tearful waiting drop onto the arid land of Shiloh and evaporate without one single verse of explanation or apology or excuse. That's a heavy, heavy thing to read in the Word of God, and it's a heavy thing to begin to absorb into our own lives. I know you've experienced this. If you've walked with the Lord for any length of time, then the words that 1 Samuel 1 used to describe Hannah and her faith and her walk with the Lord have described you. Irritation, distress, 
anxiety, vexation. These words occupy our minds and our thoughts as we think about our own walk with the Lord. I think among us, there's really kind of two camps of Christian sufferers. I think when we face suffering, there are some of us who fall in the first camp, and even in the small and mundane ways that we suffer, we miss the green light, we misplace something, we get a cold. Some of us uh, perceive God as absent in those little details, right? God is off doing bigger and better things, and he's not really attuned to the small ways in which we suffer. And so when I get a cold, that's not really the hand of God. He's not in that, and he's not anywhere to be found. And the problem is he becomes irrelevant in those moments. Well, there's other of us that fall in the second camp of whom I include myself, where we see God very present and active in all the little details of life. But when something happens, it can't help but feel personal and even vindictive and even punitive from the Lord to us. This happened to me just this week as I'm preparing a sermon on what it's like to suffer as, as a person who's following the Lord. I bought a raft for our family last week. I took it out on the Saluda River and had a major misadventure with John and Kenny. And I thought, we're going to wipe the slate clean and try it again with my family. And we park a car at Gervais, and we can't get in down by the zoo. So we haul it out to the Saluda River up by Hopes Ferry Landing. And we get in, and we really have a wonderful time. It's Julie and I and our three oldest kids paddle around Uh, get on a rope swing, enjoy everything, get out of the river, deflate the raft, haul everything, all three kids and everything back to the van, and I've locked the keys in the van with my cell phone. And here we are at Hope's Ferry Landing. It's 90 degrees out, baking in a parking lot, and there is not a soul to be found. And I think, what is happening here? I need to go down to the river and scream across the river (laughs) to a guy and his wife walking their dog and say, could you please help us? I need you to call my dad. And I'm shouting his number across the river. And I hear the guy saying, we're at Saluda Shoals Park. And I'm saying, no, we're not. We're in Lexington. We're We're on the other side of the river. And so we sit there for as long as it takes my dad to come out and pick us up and take us back to the Gervais car and then get back to our house so that we can pick up the second keys and go back to Hopes Ferry Landing. And after several hours in the car, I couldn't help but saying, Lord, what's the point here? I mean, I work hard all week, and then I want to do something simple with my family. Isn't it a small thing for you for my van key to appear in my bathing suit pocket where I thought I left it. <laughs> like, it, you've made the world by the, the word of your mouth. Could you not do that one thing for me? Regardless of what camp we fall into, whether God is absent and he's irrelevant, and I don't even bring this to him because he's off doing bigger and better things, or I see this as deeply personal and I can't help but think, are you trying to punish me or tell me something? Either way, The way we respond to suffering can drive a deep, deep wedge between us and the Lord, right? If he's absent, then I don't speak to him. If he's vindictive and punitive, then I'm afraid to say anything or I feel like the victim in this situation. But either way, I become very quiet before the Lord because I feel this distance growing between us. That's why verse 11 is so remarkable to me to watch a woman who has suffered for 20 years. We don't know how many times she's made this prayer before the Lord. We don't know how many other things she has vowed to the Lord to do if she will just please have one child. But in verse 11, she comes in distress and tears, and she says, 
O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant. There's something so special to me when a woman in the Bible coins a name for the living God. This happens in Genesis chapter 16. Hagar, who's at her wit's end, cries out for the Lord and he saves her and she says, God, you are a God of seeing. She's the first person in the Bible to call him that and that becomes one of my favorite images of God. God, you're a God who sees me. You see me in my affliction. You see me in my joy. You see me in private moments before you. You are a God who sees. Hagar was the one who gave us that language. Now it happens again in our passage because Hannah uses for the first time on anybody's lips this name for God. She says, the Lord of hosts. God, you're not just a God who sees us in our affliction, but you are the Lord of hosts. You are a God who has every resource at your disposal. The book of Samuel is inviting us into a world. It's, it's really our world as it really is where bad things happen to people of faith, where God can be very silent, but he's never absent, where sin flourishes, but it never has the last word, and God slowly, ever so painfully slowly, and ever contradictory to our timeline, 20 years of waiting for Hannah, 400 years of waiting for Israel, God visits the physical infertility of this woman and the spiritual infertility of this nation, and he goes about building the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray together. God, you are the Lord of hosts, and even when you feel silent, you are present. And so I pray even now for those of us who suffer and maybe suffer silently, that we would know that you are the God who sees us in our affliction and you are the God who has every resource at your disposal to come and meet with us. Forgive us for trying to bend you into our timetable and let us have eyes of faith to see that you are at work in this world. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.